may be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy. If you do not have your own Bible and like to borrow one of ours from one of the chairs in front of you, you will find our text on page 991, page 991. 1 Timothy chapter 1. A few years ago, Melinda and I were invited out with some friends to watch the fourth, perhaps the final Indiana Jones movie. And it was not, uh, it was not high drama, okay? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a popcorn movie, and that's okay because that, that's, that's what we like. And there had been rumors circulating about that movie that this would be the handoff movie. They were introducing the character of his son, and the thought was they could keep making uh, Indiana Jones movies, though Harrison Ford is getting a little long in the tooth. They could just do it with his son. And so at the end of the movie, they have this wedding scene where Indiana Jones finally, uh, finally gets married. He finally commits. And uh, in the midst of that ending, his son is standing, and the wind blows open the back of the doors of the church, and Indy's iconic fedora rolls across and lands at the feet of his son and his son slowly almost reverently bends down and picks up the hat and looks at it and begins to put it on and just before it's on his head Harrison Ford walks by and grabs the hands the hat out of his hands puts it on his own head and says not yet and walks out the door the rumors apparently were not true and yet and yet there will become a time when the handoff needs to be made as good as he is Harrison Ford will not endure forever Likewise, as we think on a more spiritual level about the church, there will come a time when the handover needs to be made. There will come a time when the next generation must be raised up in leadership and they must be given the reins. They must be, they must be given the wheel to steer the ship. They must be the ones guiding and directing the church. And the question is, how will they do that? How will they learn to do that? Who should be the ones to do that? These are all the kinds of questions that Paul has in mind as he writes this letter to uh, this young man, Timothy, who was serving at the church in Ephesus. Uh, When you read read the New Testament, you see that Paul and Timothy have this uh, tremendous relationship, not just one of uh, personal affection, but also one of shared ministry. In fact, just as an aside, I will say, if you want to grow in your affection for someone, if you want to get to know them and have your life bonded together with them, then the way to do that is to serve God together. It is not just to spend time watching movies and taking fun road trips. It is to unite together in the service of your God. And that is what Paul and Timothy did. Paul first met Timothy when he passed through the city of Lystra on his second missionary journey, which you can read about in the book of Acts. Uh, Perhaps he, he introduced Timothy to Christ there. We don't know. But in any case, we do know that Paul heard of Timothy's excellent reputation and invited him to join his missionary team. And Timothy accepted that call. He began his ministry under the apostles' tutelage. And he seemed like a son to Timothy, not just, uh, or seemed like a, Timothy seemed like a son to Paul, not just because of his young age. He is probably uh, in his uh, just turning 30, perhaps in his uh, a few years into that at the writing of this letter. Uh, but more than that, it was because of the personal and the close relationship that Paul had with Timothy that he felt like a son to him. They had traveled together to Thessalonica, to Corinth, to Jerusalem. Timothy had stayed at Paul's side while he was imprisoned in Rome. 
And they collaborated together on six books of the New Testament. Very often we call them the Pauline letters because, yes, they were written by Paul, but six of them say from Paul and Timothy. Two Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and Philemon all bear Timothy's name as a sender. Paul also served, or excuse me, Timothy also served as Paul's pastoral representative. The church leader delegated to lead the church that Paul had planted in Ephesus. He returned, he left Timothy there, he left him in charge, and he continued on in his missionary journeys. And after all they had been through, Paul and Timothy shared a tremendous love for one another. Paul called Timothy his partner in ministry, his brother in the Lord, his son in the faith. And it is now with a very uh, good deal of fatherly affection that Paul writes to young Timothy and offers him guidance on how to continue faithfully in the ministry. Paul writes to explain how the church and its leaders should serve and live faithfully before God. And this is especially important uh, in this context because as he has predicted in Acts 20, when he leaves the Ephesian elders, he says, there will come a day when wolves will rise up even among yourselves in this church. And now that day has come. And Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him very specifically in chapter 6, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. More than that though, he doesn't just have Timothy in mind, he has the whole church in mind. And so he says, I am writing these things to you in chapter 3. So that, don't you love when a biblical author tells you, this is why I'm writing? I'm writing these things so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And we know he's, he's meaning all of the church to hear these things and to know them because even at the end, remember how we had a, a letter written primarily to Philemon and yet was intended to be read by the church so also here because in the final greetings, Paul says, may grace be with you all, plural. There's just one Timothy, but there's many in the church. So the question before us is, how was the church to be preserved? How were they to continue on even after the Apostle Paul was gone? Ultimately, he says, it's by holding on to the gospel. It is by holding on to the gospel that the church will continue, that it will be faithful in the years and decades and centuries to come. And Paul says, Timothy, you must take the lead on this. His final words to him in this letter are, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. What deposit that? It is the deposit of the faith encapsulated in the gospel message itself. This is the message that God would have us to hear today as well. Guard the deposit of the faith that has been entrusted to us. And while it is important that every Christian have a hand in this, the responsibility of guarding the deposit will always weigh heaviest on the pastors of a church. And so as you read this book, even as we hear it this morning, you need to understand that the weight of its instruction is directed towards pastors. Therefore, I would say to you, listen with an ear towards your prayers because your pastors need your prayers. If they are going to fulfill the commands given in this book, if they are to fulfill the command to guard the deposit, then they need help of a spiritual nature. They need God to be on their side encouraging them 
and empowering them for that service. Nevertheless, again, all of God's people are meant to prayerfully consider how they themselves can help guard the deposit that has been entrusted to them. So in order to see these things practically, what does this involve? We want to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I would encourage you to follow along as I read beginning at verse 1. Sorry, I tried to give you a warning on that one, but you weren't looking at me back there, Steve. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when you, I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. The King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of God to us this morning. Here and throughout the letter, Paul lays down at least four ways in which we are to guard the deposit of the gospel. Four ways, four things that we can do that will allow us to leave a legacy for the coming generations that they may be faithful in guarding the deposit as well. So what must we do? Four things. First, we must guard a legacy of right theology. We must guard a legacy of right theology. Paul begins the letter, the body of the letter, without wasting any time by reminding Timothy of his assigned duty in Ephesus. He says, I urge you when I was in Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul says Timothy is to make sure that these teachers that have arisen and are beginning to teach different doctrine, that they stop. 
that they have a cease and desist order from Paul's representative, the pastor himself, Timothy. Specifically, he says that they should not devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, what kind of stuff is this? Well, what does it look like practically? If you were to have heard this teaching, what would it have sounded like? Well, we don't know for sure, but we have some pretty good ideas based on some popular books that were circulating at that time. One was called the Book of Jubilees. It was written around 125 B.C., and it was essentially a fanciful retelling of the Bible story of creation to Sinai. Another work written closer to Paul's day was called The Biblical Antiquities of Philo. And both of these works were based on the Old Testament scriptures, but they featured extended genealogies which went well beyond the Bible and had no foundation in any, anything that could ever be verified. They were based on unfounded conjecture and, and, and tried to build up and make more of the biographies of biblical saints. In fact, it's a great irony that all of these, both of these books and this kind of writing was specifically meant to show the exclusivity and the invulnerability of Israel and its law, and yet, in trying to hold up the law and show how special it was, they added to it. And they didn't just add interesting things, weighty things, they added silly stories that sounded more folktalish than real and thus undermined the value of the very thing they were trying to protect. And Paul says the problem with these things is that they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What are speculations? Well, they are fundamentally rooted in opinion. That's why they're called speculations, right? Someone has an idea, sometimes based on good things, sometimes not, about what something might mean or how to go about doing it. They are by nature ethereal and improvable. They're not based on on substance. Well, they might be based on it, but they go well beyond the substance, beyond truth, and into nothing that is of substance. And the result of these things then is that, Paul says, God's plans cannot be advanced. God's kingdom cannot go forward. The stewardship of the gospel that brings the salvation of God's people cannot advance. Why? Because there is nothing of substance that those plans can be built on. This is why Paul says, charge people not to teach any different doctrines. Instead, God's Uh, people, specifically his pastors and teachers, are to teach those truths which are clearly presented in God's word, clearly rooted in the Bible, and clearly handed down from the apostles themselves. It is this consistent teaching that the church is to be built upon. It is this consistent teaching that brings salvation to the world in fulfillment of God's plan. Now we think of our situation today, my goodness, how much time we could spend on this. I mean, the rest, of our, the rest of the time given over to the sermon can just be spent on seeing the, the, the absolute foolish ways in which men claiming to be from God have not obeyed this command. There always seems to be, seemingly from every corner of the planet, uh, some guy or gal that is constantly trying to come up with... I've got another bottle, thanks. Yeah. Uh, there, there seems to be always somebody uh, coming up, uh, acting like they now we really know what the Bible is all about. Now we really know what it's saying about this issue. And invariably, it's always something new. 
It may not be totally new. It may not be totally made up. It may be rooted in the Scriptures, but it's always some new angle. And the reality is, if it's really new, how come we, you know, if it's really right, how come we haven't seen it before? And so you have some people who will be well within the realm of Christianity, even some well-meaning people that would seek to redefine justification in meaningful ways and yet ultimately provide nothing that would serve as a foundation for the advancement of God's people. Other times you have people that come up with all kinds of fanciful speculations about things like the end times and so many other things that ultimately, again, provide nothing of substance, nothing of substance for the people of God. Loved ones, let me just say, don't keep a pastor like that. Don't keep a pastor like that. Whether it is me or someone else, don't let a man stand here and go on endlessly about wispy and vague notions that cause you to think back and perhaps even find, uh, find him to be impressive in his ability to pontificate on religious matters, but who never provides a clear message from the Scriptures, who never clearly lays out the doctrines that the apostles themselves taught and loved, a message that never causes you to have high thoughts of God, or greater affection of Christ, who never tells you those truths that would point out your sin and encourage you to find forgiveness in your Savior, causing this church to inch by inch grow in greater faithfulness to God and His kingdom. Don't keep someone like that in this pulpit. Get rid of them. Get rid of them and find somebody else. Guard a legacy of right theology in this church. More than that, though, secondly, guard a legacy of right living. Guard a legacy of right living. Paul has argued for right theology, but theology sometimes gets a bad rap, doesn't it? People say, well, theology is too academic. Theology is too divisive. Just give me Jesus. Well, which Jesus do you want? I mean, if you want Jesus, you've got to believe something about Jesus, and guess what? That, that brings us back to theology. But more importantly, the Bible shows over and over again, right theology leads to right living. Deep theology leads to deep godliness. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we move from theology to godliness, to right belief, to right living? Paul explains this in uh, in, uh, verses 5 through 11 here. He says, the aim of our charge, in other words, the goal of what we're seeking to do, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says the aim of our charge, the goal of our teaching, our apostolic instruction, all of our ministry is to see God's people have lives that are rooted in love. And he says, notice how that happens. How do you produce a life of love? It comes from people who have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, a godly life flows from a heart that has been transformed by God whereas God's Spirit works through the proclamation of God's Word. When that happens, then we will see people who have a pure heart, not one filled with sinful desires. We will see people have a good conscience that is one not laden with guilt. And we will see people who have a sincere faith, not one that is built on pretense or hypocrisy. In other words, Paul is saying to us, love is not pursued first or decisively by focusing on a list of behavioral commands 
and striving to conform them. You do not bring about loving, obedient, godly people by focusing only on the externals. Love is produced when the heart is changed. That's what Paul is saying here. And yet, it is this very thing that some teachers were getting wrong in Ephesus. They were denying it implicitly and explicitly by the way they taught. They were emphasizing the externals of the law as a means to produce godliness. He says in verse 6, Certain persons have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now that is an absolute hilarious sentence. I mean, if, if you missed it, go back and read it again. Think about what Paul is saying there. You have these people that are all wrapped up in the law. They want to be just like the Jewish rabbis. They want to be seen as authorities on the word of God. And yet they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just going on and on and on. And they're, they're thunderously hammering away at the pulpit in the churches. And yet the, Paul says they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just going on and on and they're all worked up. And yet it, it's not real. And they don't even know it. They don't even know what they're talking about. It reminds me very much of the politician who, in the midst of his speech, was reviewing it and looked down at one particular part and wrote in the margin, weak point, talk more loudly. And that's exactly what the people are doing here. They have no idea what they're talking about. They have some vain speculations. They have some ethereal ideas. And yet, even in the midst of their ignorance, they just press it on more and more and more confident of its truthfulness. Now, Paul isn't a Marcionite. Do you know who, you know who Marcion is? He was a, an early church heretic who said we need to do away with anything related to the Old Testament. So he never read the Old Testament. He just had the New Testament. And anything that sounded like Old Testament, he would cut out and remove. So he had this chip-chop little piece of the New Testament he would carry around. And he said, this is, this is the real substance of the Scriptures. Now, obviously, that's, that's no good, is it? And Paul is not that way either. In fact, in verse 8, he says, Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What he's saying is there's a wrong way and there is a right way to use the law. The wrong way is the way these false teachers have been using it. To think that it is the law that will make us right with God. That the law will be the power by which we will obtain godliness. Paul says, No. <clears throat> no, it's not, it's not God's people who need to hear the law proclaimed in that way. It's the people who are lawless that need to hear the law proclaimed. He says, those people that are unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. It won't be legal to say that much sooner, will it? Enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Those people need to hear the proclamation of the law in order to restrain them in their sin and ultimately to bring conviction to their hearts so that, so that they might become part of the just, those declared just in Christ by faith. Paul says, we don't use the law in the same way that these false teachers are using it. Instead, verse 11, we are to use the law lawfully in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. What is he saying there? He is saying, Christ has come. The gospel has been proclaimed and therefore that changes the way we read the law. Fundamentally, that changes the way we read the Old Testament. If you're a Christian, you read the law as a Christian, not as an ancient Jew. 
You don't read the law as a means to make you right with God or means to give you power for a godly life. Christ is the one who makes you right with God. Christ is the one who gives you power to lead a life of godliness. Therefore, when you read the law, you read it in order to see Him more clearly. You read it to see and understand more clearly what God has done for you through Him. You read the law to see the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God whom Christ fulfilled and revealed fully to us. And the more that you see Christ in that way, the more you will come to treasure Him. And the more that you come to treasure Him, the more you will come to imitate Him with your life. The Old Testament is clear. That those who worship idols become like them. How much more for those who worship the one true God? The more with the clarity of right belief, you understand who God is and you worship Him with your life, you treasure Him with your heart, you love Him with all of your being, you will begin to be transformed into His likeness. I believe Paul says that that's God's will for our life, is it not? In Romans chapter 8, to be transformed in the image of His Son. Now what happens if we don't get this? What happens if we don't understand this? Then frankly, we lose the ability to lead godly lives. We'll be able to clean ourselves up very nice on the outside. We will have, as Paul says elsewhere, the appearance of godliness, and yet we will deny its power. Because inside we will not have dealt with the heart. Remember what Paul said? A life of real godliness, a life that is rooted in love, flows from a changed heart, not just a cleaned up outside. It does no good to tell someone don't murder if they still hate in their heart. It does no good to tell someone don't practice homosexuality if they still lust after men in their heart. It does no good to say to someone, uh, do not beat up on your parents because that's not right. Don't talk back to them because that's not right if in their heart they hate them and they begrudge them and they have no respect for them. That's not real godliness. That's Phariseeism. And Paul says our aim, our charge, is to produce godly people. Therefore, we must aim at changing the heart. God says right living flows from right teaching, which points us again and again to Christ, the source of our life and godliness. That's the second thing that we should do, guard a legacy of right living. The third thing we should do is guard a legacy of the right gospel. Guard a legacy of the right gospel. Paul has just said that right theology and so right living are both tied intimately, organically to the gospel. And as we said earlier, this is really what the heart of the letter is about. Guarding the faith, guarding the gospel. And because the church rises and falls in the gospel. If you get a false gospel, then the church will begin to bend and twist and distort and it will begin to look like something God never intended the church to look like. Or it will fall apart altogether. And we only look around to the mainline denominations of our own country to see this to be true. Several decades ago, there was one generation who believed the gospel, but they assumed the gospel as well. They looked around them to the great need, uh, needs of society, things like helping the poor and fighting for racial reconciliation, and they said, let's emphasize these things. They are needed, they are immediate, and so let's bring them to the center and the focus of our church. The problem was the next generation grabbed hold of those things, but they were never taught the gospel. And so the gospel was lost. And now you have people going to church every Sunday, praying to a God they don't know, 
upon no basis upon which to know them because they don't really know who Christ is. They don't understand what he accomplished on the cross. And yet they're living good lives, trying to love their neighbor, and they believe they're going to be right with God. Paul doesn't make the centrality of the gospel some mere theological point, abstract it from real life. He understands the seriousness of the gospel both for the continuing of God's people, but as well as for his own life. Listen to verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief previously. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's why this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul says, just look at me. Look at my life. I am a living example of the gospel. I didn't just worship a false god. I was waging war against the one true God. I was seeking to annihilate His Messiah and His people. Because I was blind in ignorance and sin. And yet, by God's grace, I heard the gospel from Christ Himself. I clearly saw and understood that Jesus Christ died for sinners like me, that He might provide forgiveness and acceptance with God for me, that it was not anything I could do like I previously thought. It was not my righteousness. It was not my zeal that would make me right with God, but it was rather what He did through Jesus. And if God could save me, the chief of sinners, the sinner of the worst kind, how much more can He save anyone else? anyone else. Therefore, he has made me an example by my own life of the power and trustworthiness of Christ to be a savior for all men. When we grasp that reality, then our response should be the same as Paul's here by immediately turning to God in praise and giving him the glory. He speaks of God's mercy and he says, It is to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. D.A. Carson teaches at a seminary near Chicago. He is an amazing scholar. He is a godly man and I would encourage you to just about read everything he's written, to listen to his sermons. And he has repeatedly said that while he teaches his students, he teaches uh, mainly Ph.D. courses at the seminary, uh, when he teaches these students, he knows they are not going to remember nor learn everything that he teaches them. I mean, that's just the nature of school, isn't it? I mean, you, you work hard, you study, you pass tests, and a year later you go back, let's take the same test. You say, <laughs> no thanks, I passed that class because you know you're not going to pass that test again. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, unless you're lazy. That's just who we are. We can't keep everything in there. And yet Carson will also repeatedly say, they will remember, they will learn what I'm passionate about in my classes and in my lectures. 
And so what does that do? That transforms the way he teaches, doesn't it? He gives them the shotgun blast. But on the things he really, really wants to make sure they learn and they know, then he is passionate about in front of them and in his teaching. Loved ones, the question is, are we passionate about the gospel the way we should be? That's the way it's going to be preserved to the next generation. It's not enough that we just teach it. Are we passionate about it? It's not enough just to guard its content. We must guard the centrality of the gospel and the life and the mission of this church. We must let the young people in this church see us and hear us talk about the gospel, rejoice in the gospel, share the gospel, and live by the gospel. That's the only way to guard it for them. That's the only way to preserve a legacy by which we are able in good conscience to hand to them like a baton in a race and say, now you go and you run hard. If not, we're going to hand them a piece of smoke that's not going to last. That's not going to be good for anything and will cause the church to crumble in no short time. Paul says as we look to the future, we must guard a legacy of right theology, of right living, of the right gospel. And finally, he says we must guard a legacy of right leadership. We must guard a legacy of right leadership. Paul has explained the charge he has received from God, the charge to teach right doctrine, rooted in the gospel of Christ, which will produce a new people, the church, whose lives will be marked by love, imitating the one who saved him. And Paul says, I won't live forever. I won't be around until Christ comes back. Therefore, there is a next generation of leaders that must be raised up. The church cannot exist in the present with the leadership of the past. Do you understand that? The church in the present cannot exist leadership of the past. I thank God for previous generations of pastors. I read their books. I listen to sermons and this wild thing called the internet where I can listen to a man who's been dead for 50 years still speak because someone recorded his voice and God can still use it in my life. But we can't live on the past. We have to invest in the future. We have to build up that next generation of leadership that they themselves with their own voice can continue to serve God and his people. And this is why Paul invested in Timothy like he did. More than that, though, more than just investing in him, he tells him very explicitly, you will be taking up the task, the task that I was entrusted with. (coughs) Verses 18 and 19, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. As I was working on this, thinking about Pastor Joe being gone, uh, heading out for three weeks, duty with the Navy, I could not help but think of the song that I learned as a child. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, or shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Maybe we should amend that too. May never sail in the Navy or something. I don't know. We'll work on that that part later. But the point is, he's going off into a real situation with a real military. That's not me, and yet, and yet, that does not mean I do not exist in a battlefield of my own. It does not mean that all of us do not exist in a battlefield all our own. 
Paul tells Timothy to engage in a warfare, not fought with sword or spears against an enemy coming across a field of battle, but to fight, to engage in a warfare fought on the battlefield of the human soul. It is a battlefield fought over the truth of God's word with faith and a conscience that is clear, knowing we are right with God. And Paul will lay down in chapter 3 very specific qualifications for those who would be leaders in the church, but this is the essence of it. To fight the good fight. But some were already failing. Paul says by rejecting this, that is the instruction to, to take up to take up this, this charge, to hold on to it by faith, to press forward in good warfare. He says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. <coughs> These men had given up, giving up the fight by failing to hold on to the faith. They had embraced false teaching and they had engaged in blasphemy. Did that mean they actually said some, some profane thing about God? Probably not. What Paul says is, when you proclaim false doctrine, it's blasphemy. Because it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about God. I mean, how, how more blasphemous can you get to say, Jesus Christ is not the Savior of all men? That's blasphemy. Because it's so true. The result, Paul says, is that he disciplined these people that they might come to repentance. And Paul is telling Timothy, you saw what happened to their life. Don't do that. Don't follow in their footsteps. You, you remain committed to the fight as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Keep hold of sound doctrine so that you may lead God's people in godliness to make sure, to make sure that Timothy himself, he says, remains unstained from the world. He will later tell, the, tell him, watch your life and doctrine. Timothy, be concerned for teaching them, be concerned for your people, but you watch your own life and doctrine. As much as the pastor is called to, to do that for the people, so much more for himself because he is just as much a target as they are. We must train up future leaders to remain consistent, hard-fighting, and faithful in the good warfare that is the war of the gospel in a sinful world. One example of this is Hugh Latimer, who we've mentioned in previous sermons, a great reformer in England, a man who grasped hold of the gospel and would not let go. And one Sunday he was called to preach before the king of England himself, Henry VIII, who was no friend of the gospel. Latimer preached, and as he suspected he might, he offended the king. He was so offended, the king demanded he come back the next Sunday, preach again, and first apologize for what he had said before. Latimer, like a good servant of the king, he came back the next Sunday, and as he began to preach, he first began to preach to himself. And here is what he preached. You, Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away life if thou offends. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh. Dost thou know from whence thou comest? Upon whose message thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdest thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And then Hugh began word for word to preach the exact same message he had preached the week before, but only with more vigor and power and energy. 
That is a man who was faithful in the good fight of faith. The question for us is, though, in future years, who will lead this church? What kind of teaching will be presented from this pulpit, from the Scriptures? Will they teach the same doctrine taught by Paul and Timothy and a thousand other faithful men throughout church history? Will they lift up Christ so that God's people will not only be guarded in their own faith, but will be able to believe rightly and live rightly? Will those leaders guard the deposit? Will you, will you help guard the deposit in this place? This is God's calling on our life. And as one who stands behind this sacred desk week in and week out trying to wage the good warfare, let me encourage you to pray for your pastors. Pray that we stay faithful. And if we don't, if, if there comes a time and I make shipwreck of the faith, then do not worry about my feelings. Do not give care to friendship. You do what it takes to guard the deposit because nothing Nothing is more important than that. Heavenly Father, I pray that from this time forward, if not before, that this church will be marked by faithfulness in your call to guard the deposit. God, I pray from every classroom, every time this pulpit is stood behind, every time your word is opened, that there will be a clear, consistent message that pushes us forward in seeing your glory, deepening our faith, living a life of love for you. God, I pray that you would so guard this church, that if that would cease to happen, God, that even supernaturally you would step in, that you would preserve your people, God. that you would do it by the power of your spirit and that you would do it for the glory of your name. That this city might come to know very well. Even if they refuse to believe it, if they refuse to accept it, if they war against it, they would hear well the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen.